we are going to read verses 1 to 29. Next week, it's actually, I'm going to be doing two sermons in chapter 19. So you'll notice I'm skipping over some of the, uh, the details where you might be like, hey, is he skipping that? He doesn't want to deal with it. I will deal with it next week. If I don't mention it this week, have no fear. It'll be part of next week's message. So um, please stand for the reading of God's holy and errant word. Hear the word of God to you this morning. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they've come under my protect, the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out, pulled Lot back into the house, and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, You have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters? Or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord's about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain." Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said, he said to him, Very well. I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. 
This is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Thus ends the reading of God's authoritative word. May he strengthen our hearts with it this morning. You may be seated. Quick contextual reminder, so we get this in its right context. Don't forget, this whole passage comes right after Abraham, God's covenant partner by his grace, was pleading before the Lord for the right, if there be any righteous left in Sodom. Up to ten, you remember, he whittled the Lord down to ten, that please, Lord, would, would you not spare it for ten righteous? And so here, I'm just going to point out what his concern was. In chapter 18, verse 23, this is the heart, what was at the heart of Abraham's request. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That was the question. The question, are you, what happens to those people who are innocent, who know you? Verse 25, verse 18, chapter 18. Abraham makes this incredible affirmation. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, and then there's this age-old question, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Before we tackle these, this very solemn, sad chapter, probably one of the saddest in all the Bible, without a question, that, which shows us, t tells us about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the rescue of Lot. We have to see that this is the question that has been asked ever since the fall of man. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The events of chapter 19 show Abraham, who first posed this question, and us, for whom these things were written down, that this question is answered in the affirmative. Of course, the judge of all the, the earth, the righteous one, the God who is holy, 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 will do right. He always does right. As a matter of fact, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the rescue of Lot provide a small, that's what we're going to see, and a local example of what God will ultimately do globally when Jesus comes back to punish the wicked and rescue the righteous. We're going to see in a moment, in a couple of minutes, I didn't make that up. The New Testament authors point that out. I can't take credit. 
But as such, what I want us to see this morning is that God speaks to us, New Testament believers, through it today. We hear the message of the Lord. Next week, we're going to take a look at the text from the viewpoint. If you, if you possibly can be here, I would recommend you be here. If, if you profess faith in Christ here this morning, because it's a powerful message next week. We're going to see the downward, downward spiral of a righteous man. We're going to take a look at Lot and the steps he took that brought him to, to ruin. He was spared, but his life became a mess and disintegrated. His family disintegrated right before him. This week, we're going to take a look at the bigger picture, the melodic line of the passage, the main punch of the text, so that we don't get lost in details. Um, this is one of those sermons that I wrote about five or six times before I finally whittled it down to, okay, I want to stick to the punch, because there's so many interesting details that take you. We did that some of that Wednesday, and if you have time to come Wednesday nights, we'll do more of that uh, this coming Wednesday. But for now, we're going to see this very, very poignant message. Since we know that God will judge the wicked and he will rescue the righteous, we ought to keep walking in the ways of the Lord and not look back. That's the message for us. Since God's going to judge the wicked, he's going to save the righteous, then we need to continue to walk with Jesus by faith and not look back at our old life, at the world, or those passing pleasures. Three points that are simple, but some of them painful. The first is God will judge the wicked. You've got to take a look at that. Judge of the earth will do what's right. And in some cases, that will mean judgment. Secondly, God will rescue the righteous. The judge of all the earth will do right. And in some cases, that will mean salvation. And last of all, we ought to stay on God's path and not look back. Let's take a look at the first one. Um, probably the longest point, so don't get nervous. <laughs> I like to tell you that ahead of time. All right, so God will judge the wicked. Now remember, the question is, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Now I think it's, that's why we see over and over again why the text takes such great pains to underline, listen, to underline the depths of the wickedness of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice throughout the text, both chapter 18 and 19, God keeps bringing that up. The word of God does. And notice something that we can't miss either. The New Testament authors point this out too. But even if you're just studying Genesis, you should pick this up. This isn't the first time this has happened. There was another time in Genesis, if you've been tracking with us, that this happened. Remember what it was. It was the great flood. What preceded the great flood of judgment? Well, we'll take a look real quick. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. And I think it's important for us to highlight his heart was filled with pain. Pain over the sin of the people he created in his own image. And no doubt the pain of what he would have to do. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. 
what he tells us in Ezekiel. But we see it here. Wickedness of man. So, so God sent a great flood rescuing only Noah and his family, eight and all. And he started all over. Now this, in this instance, it's not the whole world that gets his attention. But notice, it's the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah. What precedes his judgment there? Just going to give you a few verses. 13, 13 of Genesis points out this. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. 1820 of Genesis. Then the Lord said the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous. This is the Lord's words. So as we know, we get to our text, the Lord sends two of his angels to destroy the city. Now remember, he promised never to destroy the whole world again with a flood. You remember that promise? The rainbow is a sign. However, Sodom had become so corrupt that God could stay his hand of judgment no longer. And remember, that's what Abraham asked. He asked if God would spare the city if ten righteous were found there. Well, here's the interesting thing and, and the sad thing. In chapter 19, we find that barely half of that number, maybe a lot less than half, were found. An argument can be made that it was only Lot. At best, Lot, his wife, and his daughters. At best. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So we pick the story up with the two angels going to the city gate to Sodom in the evening where Lot was sitting. And when Lot sees them, he responds in a similar way that Abraham responded when they came to visit him. He bows his face down to the ground. He pleads with them to spend the night in his house. And notice they declined and said something interesting. They said, no, we're going to stay in the city square. <laughs> now, why is that interesting? Because Lot knows his hood. Lot's like, I know this area of town, so to speak, and there's no way my guests are hanging out in the city square because I know what the people are going to do to them. Those of us who live in the city, we know what it's like. I have people visit from out of town. Sometimes they want to jog 1 o'clock in the morning like down Pacific. I'm like, no. <laughs> you ain't doing that. Well, in this case, that's exactly what Lot was like. There was no safe place in Sodom. There wasn't a section of town that was bad. It was just bad. Dangerous. And as we're going to see in a moment, exactly what he feared was going to happen almost happened if it wasn't for the intervening power of God through the angels. So we read this in verse 4 of 19. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city, both of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called a lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. I don't have to tell you that's appalling. It's heinous. They wanted to molest Lot's special guests. Not exactly a great welcome. Now some have tried to say that the sin of Sodom was not sexual immorality so much as it was neglecting the poor. And the reason they do this, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I have to mention it. The reason they do this is because Ezekiel 16.49, listen, says this. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. 
So some try to say, see, it had nothing to do with sexual morality, it just had to do with not helping the poor. Well, the problem is the people who quote that don't go on to read the next verse in Ezekiel 16, which says this, they were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So the cross-reference to Ezekiel 16 simply gives us a little more insight into the nature of Sodom's wickedness and by no means contradicts the fact that one of their chief sins was sexual morality, particularly of a homosexual nature. That's what Genesis 19 clearly says. And look, even Lot's response in the text shows this to be the case because he says this, No, my friends, or in the original Hebrew, no, my brothers. Apparently, Lot was getting a little too close to his neighbors. Don't do this wicked thing. He calls it wicked, because that's what it would have been. One more cross-reference, and that's it from this point. Jude 7 closes the case, if you were still doubting. This is what Jude says. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to what? Sexual immorality and perversion. Now, here's the next part that should really be important for us to listen to. Jude says, they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Wow. See, when the Bible talks about the punishment of the wicked, the unrepentant wicked, when Jesus returns, we don't have to wonder. There's so many theologians write pages and pages and debates. We don't have to wonder, is hell really just kind of this, this frightening possibility or something just to scare us straight? Now, some of us know from the 80s there used to be a show called Scared Straight, and they would try to scare people just to not go to jail and, you know, but the question is, is this just kind of a, a cosmic bluff to make us stay in line? Well, we know for a fact that it's not a cosmic bluff, that it is a reality. How do we know it's a reality? I never thought about this before in my life. This is the first time since I've come to know Jesus in 86 that I've, I saw this. How do we know it's a reality? Because it already happened in Sodom and Gomorrah in a small scale. The fire and brimstone did come, and a whole two cities were wiped to the ground. And I'm going to talk about it in a moment, but you see Abraham standing where he prayed, looking over the plains after it happened, and the smoke is rising. And you can imagine how that righteous man felt in his heart. This is an example of what will happen to all the wicked who are unrepented in the end if they don't turn and believe on Christ. The, man, the men's behavior toward Lot and the two angels just prove how, how righteous and just God is in judging them. God wants, to, wants you to see that. Much debate goes on about what the sin that caused God to finally have enough and destroy them was, as I just mentioned. Was it not helping the poor? Was it sexual sin? Was it particularly a perverse sin, as Jude 7 points out? Now listen, this is important. I've got to say this. The answer to that, listen, the answer to that, this is profound, is it's both, it's both and it's neither. In other words, both of those sins... Um, not helping the poor and sexual immorality, immorality, and it's neither of those sins. 
All right, Pastor. That sounds like a logical contradiction. Well, just give me a second to explain. That's all I ask. First instance, it's both. They were exceedingly sinful. Pick a sin. They were engaged in it. They had thrown off all bounds. They refused to listen to God Almighty. Everyone, as it says in Judges, basically it was true here. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no law. They threw it off. So in one sense, it was all their unrepentant sin. All it takes is one seriously unrepentant sin. And that is worthy of the judgment of hell. But in another sense, I want you to see this. Neither of those sins in particular brought upon this judgment. I'll explain it. Here's what the sin was that, that caused it. Their stubborn, persistent refusal to turn from these things and trust in the Lord. Because the only sin that will damn us is unrepentant sin. There's no special sin. Oh, God can't forgive that. That's too heinous. No, he'll forgive it if it's truly repented of. Spurgeon once put it this way. Sin and hell are married unless repentance declares a divorce. Yeah. He says it great, doesn't he? Why don't I come up with stuff like I don't know. But I know it's an awesome thing. Awesome way of putting it. Now, this is a really important point that we need to learn today. And I, I want to say this. Like I told you, the other points won't be this long. Don't worry. But I need to stop here and tell you this. It is not sinful. I repeat, it is not sinful to experience all kind of temptations. Temptation is not sin. Don't confuse the two. Since the fall of man, we go back to Genesis. We've been reading Genesis, right? Since Adam and Eve fell, guess what? We'd be all messed up. And when people say, whatever the sin is, but it feels so natural. Of course it does, because you're screwed up. It ain't natural in the sense, when God first created man, these things were not natural. Did not feel right, because we were upright. We had a holy nature. But because of our sinful nature, since the moment of conception, David says, I've been sinful since the moment I was conceived. We have this pull toward all kinds of sin. Now, some of us have a, a stronger pull toward sexual sin with members of the opposite sex. Others are tempted toward same-sex attraction. Some feel a strong temptation to lie, others to steal, some to do others bodily harm. You get the picture? And here's the, why I say this. Because true, godly, real, genuine Christians deal with all kinds of sins in this sense. No one could say, oh, how could he be a Christian and struggle with that? What, are you kidding me? I remember one time coming out of a seminary class, I heard one of the younger students, they, they were talking back and forth. Usually I try to mind my own business, but this guy was like, I don't see you could be a Christian and struggle with homosexual sin. And I was like, fit to be tied. Like, dude, what are you talking about? Do you not believe? And you, you say you're a Calvinist. It's called total depravity. We could struggle with all kinds of things. Sometimes we even fall into sin from time to time, and we need to re repent and return to the Lord. But here's the difference. Believers call it what it is. It's sin. And with the help of God's grace, with God's spirit, and God's people, and God's word, we don't practice it as a way of life. 
The people of Sodom and Gomorrah, we just saw a good picture of that. They were bold, brazen sinners whose tragic demise serve as an example of what will happen to all who go on in their sins and refuse to repent. Super important. John Newton, that lovely hymn he wrote. Remember, Amazing Grace. We hear it at funerals all the time. You're not going to hear this one at funerals, but he wrote this one too. It's called Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders. And if I could play keyboard, we would be singing that later, but I can't. So, This is what he writes. At his call, the dead awaken, rise to life from earth and sea. All the powers of nature shaken, by his looks prepare to flee. Careless sinner, what will then become of thee? So hell is a reality. And this very passage is just a tiny glimpse of what awaits the wicked. God will punish the wicked. And it's something that we need to take to heart. And it's something that certainly would compel us to, to warn our neighbors that there is a real hell and they need to come to Christ. But notice there's space, more space probably given to the second major point, but because of uh, our culture and our time, I had to spend more time on the one. But let's take a look at the second one, God will rescue the righteous. Now from the moment the angels arrive in Sodom, they have one objective other than bringing God's judgment down on the city. What's the second objective? Rescuing the handful of believers who live in Sodom. So it's, it's destruction on the one hand, and it's salvation on the other, if you notice. And that means Lot and his immediate family. Look at verse 15 and 16 real quick. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away when the city's punished. When he hesitated, can you believe that? Told you we're sinful. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand in the hands of his wife and his two daughters, led them safely out of the city, for what? The Lord was merciful to them. Praise God for his mercy. That's all I got to say. Because in a very real sense, in answer to the prayer of his covenant partner, Abraham, God had mercy on Abraham's nephew. Remember, in context, God tells Abraham, says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And then Abraham prays from God's lead. John Salehammer puts it this way. Listen, this is powerful. The picture of Lot, then, is that of a righteous man who has been rescued from the fate of the wicked through the intercession of God's chosen one. Huh. That sounds a little interesting, doesn't it? So in other words, Lot was rescued because God's chosen one was praying for him. Does that sound like somebody else we know? That's because Abraham here is a type of Christ. There are a lot of them in the Old Testament which foreshadow, they point ahead to the ultimate intercessor, the ultimate chosen one of God, the ultimate, by the way, anointed one, which where we get the word what? Messiah. Sorry, Neo, it ain't you. It's Jesus. I knew the college crowd would understand that. <laughs> Don't worry. Most of the college. <laughs> but think of Jesus' high, high, high priestly prayer in John 17. What does he say? I pray for them, meaning his disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Snap. Romans 8.34, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and what? Is also interceding for us. 
Mm-mm-mm. And I ain't done. Hebrews 7, 25. Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to do what? Intercede for them. Don't let that ransom sinner die. And the father says, amen. Of course, we know why. Remember, the judge of the earth was right. Wait a minute. How can he let Lot, that, Lot, that rascal, even though he's righteous, certainly compared to the men of Sodom, how's he going to let him go after all his sinfulness? Because in the future, Jesus would pay the punishment of hell. We, just, we read it earlier. He descended into hell. What do you think he did that for? Not for himself. For you and me. For Abraham, for Lot. Verse 16, and it's important to see this. Even the deliverance of the righteous is purely out of God's mercy and grace and not because of any deserving on their part. Look at verse 16. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand in the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them out safely, safely out of the city for the Lord was merciful to them. Mercy, mercy. One of my favorite quotes from Augustine. Um, you know, a lot of times people talk about, why do you quote all these dead white guys, old dead white? Well, this is an old dead black guy because he's an African bishop. Amen? And I love him. And this is what he says. The righteousness of the saints in this world consists more in the forgiveness of sins than the perfection of virtue. In other words, why is Lot righteous? Because he's such a good and holy guy? No, because he's a forgiven sinner. That's ultimately. I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ. If it wasn't for that, I'd have no hope. Amen. Neither would you, so don't get too excited. <laughs> Certainly Lot was not a great witness of how a believer should live. We'll see that next week. Think about it. Even on the very cusp of cataclysmic destruction, he hesitated and had to be grabbed by the hand by, like a little child. More on that next week, but for now we simply note that even the righteous only find rescue in the mercy and the grace of a patient, loving, just God. One more quote, and then we go to our last point, which is, and then we'll finish it up. Richard Baxter. Oh, I guess I did end up quoting from an old white guy, but he's a Puritan. Was, and he says this, As we paid nothing for God's eternal love and nothing for the son of his love and nothing for his spirit, and our grace and faith, and nothing for our eternal rest, what an astonishing thought it will be to think of the unmeasurable difference between our deservings and our receivings. Now this is the line I love. Oh, how free was all this love, and how free is this enjoyed glory. Now wait for it. So then, let deserved be written on the floor of hell, but on the door of heaven and life, the free gift. Isn't that awesome? How should we live in light of this? And this is what we're going to close with. Therefore, we ought to stay on God's path and not look back. And I'll show you that's what, why it's from the text. Notice verse 17. As soon as they, brought, they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. And, and notice the command. It's important for you to see this. Don't look back. That's what the angel told them. And don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But then we find in verse 26 one of the saddest things. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. 
Now, for time's sake, I'm going to fast forward to our Lord's own words in Luke 17, 28. When he's speaking about the distress just prior to the days of his second coming. And he warns us to remember the example of Lot's wife. So 1728 of Luke. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. And here's the punchline. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, we just need to let it go. Let it all go. And receive our inheritance. In his book, Feminine Faces, Clovis Chapel wrote that when the city, the Roman city of Pompeii, uh, my grandpa lived 20 minutes from Pompeii, by the way, uh, was being excavated, the body of a woman was found mummified, listen, this is interesting, by the volcanic ashes of Mount Vesuvius. Her position told a tragic story. Her feet pointed toward the city gate, but her outstretched arms and fingers were straining for something that lay behind her. The treasure for which she was grasping, listen, was a bag of pearls. Chapel says this, though death was hard at her heels and life was beckoning to her beyond the city gates, she could not shake off their smell. But it was not the eruption of Vesuvius that made her love pearls more than life. It only froze her in this attitude of greed. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Listen, God is graciously taking us by the hand and leading us out of the most extreme and horrifying disaster. Fire and brimstone from heaven. But in this case, even then you can't let go of your worldly possessions and your worldly comforts that are about to go up in smoke. Brothers and sisters, we've been rescued from a great disaster. And here's the key. Out of deep gratitude, we should be so thankful that we're saved from this. And out of deep love for the one who loved us first, we should stay on God's path by faith and not look back. Think about it this way. Why would you look back? Why would you long and pine for what this temporal world has to offer when someday it's all going to go up in smoke? You can't take it with you. If you're trusting in Jesus, you have a kingdom that's going to last forever that you're living for. Jim Elliot, some of you may know, he was martyred for his faith. Wonderful quote that I only looked up to make sure I had the wording exactly right, but I had it memorized. I don't know why, but I did. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The old hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross, puts it this way. Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Now listen, great question. Is this vile world a friend of grace to help me on to God? 
You know, being friends with the world is being an enemy with God. And how is an enemy of God going to help you spiritually? And yet we live like this is our home. We get a little settled. We start putting roots down. First John 2.17, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives what? Forever. That's a long time. So in a nutshell, as we close, what did Lot's wife and also Lot himself lack that Abraham had? This is an important thing as we close. You know what they lacked that Abraham had? A pilgrim spirit. It's not a minor thing, but it's vital to being not simply a survivor as a foreigner in a foreign land, not just surviving, but thriving as pilgrims who progress from this present world to the world of the life that is to come. Abraham in verse 27, this is what we're closing with. He stands over the wreckage and he ponders these things. And in case you didn't remember, we're going to close with this. God said, I have chosen Abraham for what? That he might train up his children in my ways. That they would follow me. And don't you think that he would forever be etched in his memory, the smoke rising from Sodom. And that would be part of the discipleship of the catechism that he would be teaching his kids and warning them of. As he also taught all the nice positive promises of the gospel brothers and sisters we need to do that ourselves in a culture that is so desperately needing of to know what's right and what's wrong what is God's way and what is not God's way no matter what they say or what they do to us God will reward us on that day he will say well done good and faithful servant let's pray Father, we thank you for even these difficult words. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, most of all, that literally you took the wrath of, that we see here, it was poured out in Sodom and Gomorrah, but even worse, upon yourself, that we might become the righteousness of God in you. And Father, as we think of these sobering truths may we impress them upon our children may we impress them on young believers may we encourage the old one another with these words so that when you come lord jesus we will not be ashamed but awaiting your blessed return it's in your name that we pray and with hope only in your mercy amen